Jesus is mine. And other songs that we sang tonight, as Brother Larry led us in these, have been beautiful songs and wonderful messages all the while. And as we've sung those together, we now come to a part of our worship in which we'll open the Word of God, give consideration to a section of it, and tonight our focus will be the fourth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me encourage you to open your Bible to that chapter. We'll be, in fact, devoting the fullness of our lesson to various verses in that fourth chapter. I might use this opportunity to mention that, of course, this is the fourth installment in a series of lessons on this interesting Old Testament book. And as we look at it, we'll be continuing for several Sunday evenings yet to come. As I've studied about it, I've basically lengthened the series as I have studied a bit more intently. I thought first we might only need oh three or four, but tonight the fourth one we're only in chapter four, so we have a few yet to go. I hope though that as we study this book, we'll keep in mind that it is inspired and that these lessons we see tonight, although on occasion some of our common experiences do relate to them rather well, Given the fact that they're inspired, oh, how meaningful some of these things can be to us. This opening slide is an introductory one, reminding us that throughout this series, we're asking and looking rather carefully at this question, is life worth living? May you and I never pass that question too quickly. It is one of the most basic questions that anybody can ask. Given the circumstances of this life, is it really worth living? As you start reading the book of Ecclesiastes, you and I have noted a strong emphasis on monotony occurs first, and that would appear to make the answer no. There are so many things that we are unable to change, so many cycles in our life and existence which are beyond our control. Solomon, as he observed those things, initially led to a rather strongly negative feeling. Did you note verse 2 of chapter 1? Almost the initial proclamation of the book. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But as you and I continued the study in that series, we noted that Solomon next gave emphasis to various things that he attempted that would offer perhaps some meaning to life. He tried wisdom, wealth, popularity, and he found all of them, too, did not provide the meaning and the emphasis for life. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Last Sunday night, we noted that after a third reflection on both wisdom and wealth, he began to develop a new viewpoint. To look at things not merely as if they're under the sun, but to see a grander perspective and a much more beautiful appreciation. And as you and I began that near the close of chapter 3, you'll notice that he highlighted the reality of death and judgment. Notice, now that's beyond just what's underneath the sun. He began to look at things from the eyes of one beyond this. Much of the rest of this book, in one way or another, will cause you and I to think about a new perspective on things. As you open to chapter 4 with me, our focus tonight will be these verses of chapter 4, and we'll look at all 16 of them. And as we do that, I've tried to summarize some of the features like this. The word unfairness is what I'm going to utilize as the overarching theme and appreciation about most of the matters of this chapter. You may ask, what does unfairness have to do with it? 
may I ask this question? From our appreciation, is life always fair? Are there things you and I witness, and sometimes they make us almost angry when we appreciate that this behavior, this conduct, this way of doing things, almost obviously appears tremendously unfair. Even the king of the ancient era, Solomon, had a viewpoint. And as you and I begin reading in verse 1, let me read the first three verses and see what the first issue and unfairness that he noted. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praised the dead which are already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Now you'll notice as he begins to more thoroughly develop his viewpoint, notice under the sun is a phrase that has occurred twice. Something greatly bothered Solomon on this occasion. Let me invite you to note what it is. Remember, his viewpoint has begun to change, and now with this greater sense of appropriateness, you notice he says, So I returned. What did you return from, Solomon? In the viewpoint he had begun to develop, the reality of death, the understanding of life that ought to be godly, and the reality of a coming judgment. I returned, he said, and in that light... I considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Oppressions. Now, that's the King James reading, and you and I immediately understand a bit about what's involved. Oppressions, because he helps us identify. Note this. Solomon was greatly bothered. Now, at first sight, you may wonder, he's the king. Can't he stop the oppression? Can't he force those, let's say, in authority and in power not to oppress those that were beneath them? The obvious answer is, in an expansive empire, you can't look over the shoulder of every single person in authority. There are always going to be those who are left to their own devices and those who make their decisions. And on occasion, sometimes far more often than we would like, they choose to oppress those underneath them. They take advantage of them. Those in judicial circles. You can realize back in the ancient era, a judge was a critical occupation. You determined these cases in which individuals would come with grievances. How often was it, for example, that God warned the judges, don't you take a bribe and don't you ever look upon the wealthy in such a way that you simply render in their behalf because they can pay you. In Deuteronomy 1.17 and Deuteronomy 16.18, God in strong language warned them, you always make a just judgment. Whether it be for the poor, whether it be for the rich, you always judge righteously. May I suggest that, again, there were people in that day that were corrupt. Do you and I face this issue today? Is there corruption, let's say, in government or in other circles of existence? All that one has to do is pay a day or two's attention to the news 
and you readily understand there are those in corporations, there are those who are judges in government positions, and they choose to embezzle, they choose to take what's not rightfully theirs, they take advantage of their patrons. When Solomon saw people doing this, it bothered him. This which occurs under the sun... This oppression, and did you notice he twice said that they had no power. Those that were in such afflictions could not alter or change because those that were doing this were more powerful than they. May I invite all of us to consider oppression still occurs, and though it may greatly trouble us, and though it may greatly agitate our sense of rightness, may I call to your attention this verse not only in judicial circles, but in other places. God warned about behaviors like this. Did you note with me Micah 3, verses 3 and following? And also in Zephaniah. Those were two of the minor prophets, and they rather loudly shouted on behalf of God, for this behavior I'm going to punish you. You've taken advantage of the widows, you've taken advantage of the poor, you've taken advantage of those who had no power against you. And I am aware of their plight and the fact you made it this way for them. Well, you and I understand, of course, that God still wishes in that principle of Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. For this is the law of the prophets. Do you and I like being oppressed? Obviously we don't, and therefore we must never purposefully, deliberately choose to oppress someone else. Isn't it rather interesting that as you close that particular thought, notice how strongly this led to a reaction in Solomon. In verses 2 and 3, there was even an element in which he recognized that those that were dead, at least they didn't have to face the oppression like he was now witnessing. Maybe this oppression sufficiently bothers us that we too are aware if only the principles of Christianity could reign supreme, there'd be no more oppression. If every person worldwide, in power or not in power, would simply understand the message of Jesus, that would put an end to oppression as you and I know it. It'd put an end to these issues and troubling matters. Solomon, it seemed, highly wondered and longed for reality and end to this. As unfair as that may seem, it isn't the only thing he saw that bothered him. Let's look at the next one together. Maybe this one's going to touch a strong chord in each of us. Issues related to work. Beginning in verse number 4 and continuing through verse number 7, or rather verse 6, he now made note of this other issue that greatly troubled him. Would you listen as I read those verses as well? Again, I considered all travail in every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. What an interesting description. It's a rather brief paragraph. I've entitled it, Issues with Work. 
All of us know very well about the lot of work that's given to us in this life. The expectation that God has placed upon us that our efforts, our labors, our endeavors ought to be productive and appropriate. Sometimes you and I simply call it work, but notice something about work troubled Solomon. Something greatly bothered him. You notice he said, again, I considered. In his wisdom, he appreciated something, and let's see if it bothers us on occasion, or at least if we've experienced it. It begins like this. Verse number 4 says, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. Have you been in a position in which perhaps by your talent or by your skill or maybe by your capability or perhaps years of honing your craft, you are able to accomplish a work, a task, but maybe someone else looks upon you with jealousy. They're jealous that you're able to do it the way that you are, as skillfully as you are. And in that jealousy, they perhaps hold a bitterness to you. They don't appreciate that which you're able to accomplish, and they see you more as an enemy rather than as a compatriot, one who can in fact be a source of skill or of advice. Jealousy. May I ask you to notice again, Solomon saw this, and it troubled him. Jealousy is a dangerous cancer. You and I have considered in sermons before, it can lead to envy. And in so doing, it will in fact boil up to that which is called the rottenness of the bones in Proverbs 14.30. Envy is the rottenness of the bones. As Solomon reflected upon this, notice this statement. May I quickly say, legitimate work is a powerful thing and God approves of it. The very first human creation of God, namely Adam, God put him to work. He was told to dress and to keep the garden in Genesis 2.15. That was before he and Eve took of that forbidden fruit. They were working before the fall. Sometimes on occasion you'll hear individuals who will say that work and the reality of it only came about after man sinned. That isn't so. Adam and Eve had work to do before they ever sinned. And that work was a productive thing and that which was in accordance to the will of God. Today it's good for a man to work. It's good to be involved in these activities. Look at some of these verses. In Ecclesiastes 5 verse 18, same book in which we're dealing the inspired writer Solomon said, Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he hath taken under the sun all the days of his life. That word labor is just another word for work. And there Solomon noted the goodness attached to a proper effort and a proper work. As you and I will notice even further, even if there are others who then become jealous of you or me, we can't stop using our talents and our capabilities just because somebody is jealous of our abilities. If we were to do that, we would not be following the pattern given to us in other places in the Word of God. 
For instance, in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Or in Luke 19, the parable of the pounds. In each instance, these individuals utilized in full measure those capabilities provided to them. And there was not the slightest hint that say the two-talent man didn't use all of his because the one-talent man was jealous of him. Or there's no hint in the parable of the pounds that the one gentleman didn't use his because another was not happy with him. May I say that as you and I use our abilities God has given us and we study and learn more craft to utilize, we're only doing that which God would have us to do. Not only that, notice the next point. This isn't the only problem that Solomon witnessed. Verse number 5, it says, "...the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh." That's the inspired writer's way of referring to a lazy man. He folds his hands together. He could work, but he's not. He is able to work, but he chooses not to. You'll notice he folds his hands together, but what's the consequence? It says he eats his own flesh, rottening from the inside out, if you please. The Bible doesn't encourage laziness or slothfulness on our part, does it? book of Ecclesiastes and so many others encourages us in statements like 2 Thessalonians 3.10, If a man won't work, neither should he eat. Now that principle was one we found embedded in the heart of the New Testament. There were individuals in the city of Thessalonica who it would seem were hopeful that the church might be a provider for them when they were perfectly capable of working. And in that case, some of them had been given to being busybodies. The text says they had given themselves over to other kinds of activities which were more along the line of idleness, be it gossip, be it other things. And Paul said, this isn't good. If a man won't work, neither ought he to eat. Now that principle that you and I have appreciated, we notice here even in this wonderful text of Ecclesiastes, this bothered Solomon. The fool foldeth his hands. Did you know what else Solomon called this kind of individual? That person's a fool. Now remember, the word fool is used so often in the Bible is not a word of insult. I understand that many times today it's taken that way. You refer to somebody as a fool, they get mad at you. When the Bible refers to an individual as a fool, it's merely an individual who is making poor judgment based on the reality of the information that he or she has. They see the evidence and what it suggests, but they choose something else. You know what happens to a lazy man, one who could work but won't. It doesn't turn out good. Proverbs has a lot to say about that. Solomon on this occasion said, I've seen this, I've witnessed it. Did you notice? One last thing he observes in verse 6 is the thing that closes our slide. What Solomon highlights that's so proper is this beautiful discussion of balance. Notice what he's asserted. It is entirely possible for an individual to be so enamored with correct work. You just work all the time. But you'll work your life away if you do that, and you won't ever, quote, smell the roses along the way. All you'll do is work and you'll end up dying. And what have you enjoyed? 
He says it's far better to have a handful with quietness. Be content. You may only have a handful, but appreciate that as a gift from God, but enjoy the quietness and peace that comes with it. Rather than to have both hands full, have a lot, but along with that comes travail and vexation. It is important, isn't it, to understand the lesson that's in that little sixth verse. But there are two more things that Solomon would wish us quickly to note about unfairness. Beginning in verse number 7, verses 7 and following bring us to a discussion of solitariness. Then I return, would, may I pause and ask you to notice there are adverbs scattered through this. Then I return, so first he looked in order and he saw the oppression. And then he saw that matter of issue with work. Now upon reflection he sees something else. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither, saith he, for whom do I labor? And bereave my soul of good, this is also vanity, and yea, it is a sore travail. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That reading of verses 7 to 12, brings before us this topic. I've entitled it, Solitariness. It all begins with these appreciations. Solomon, it would seem, has in view this individual who appreciates the acquiring of things, and he wants to be in position, I don't have to share it with anybody. And so in verse number 8, there is one alone, there is not a second neither child or brother. Maybe this person has never married. It would seem so. Again, no child. And furthermore, there is not a brother. The person wishes not to divide. The person wishes, you see, to keep or to maintain that which has been acquired. You may notice as this verse goes on to its description, it says, "...yet is there no end of all his labor." Again, this person is working excessively and extensively for the acquiring of these things and the person doesn't want to share them and doesn't want to have to divide them. It is with that in mind, I might ask you to know what a great question is asked in verse 8. Has the person ever wondered, why am I doing this? Who am I laboring for? I can't take it with me. If there's nobody to share it with, what reason is there to accumulate it? It would seem, in the words of Solomon, the person has never pondered that, at least realistically. No wonder in light of that, it leads me to that next comment. Doesn't the Bible highlight in this passage some sweet benefits for sharing things in life? Let me ask you to notice a few of them. Beginning in verse number 9. 
two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. It's a great thing when you can celebrate with someone and share the successes of your life. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a very close friend, maybe it's another individual, but to be able to share the successes, the joys, the benefits, the rewards, it's a wonderful thing. But in addition to that, notice what else. In verse number 10, if they fall, one can lift the other one up. But if you're by yourself and you fall, there's no one to help you up. Now that's Solomon's way of describing there's this beautiful benefit in which two can provide strength and direction and assistance and encouragement. But when one's by him or herself, those things are not available in the same way. In addition to that, verse number 11, he also mentions warmth. Now clearly in light of a married couple, maybe that's the most natural way you and I can think of this, but I would assert in a way it's even broader than this. Because you can think about two, for instance, are able to chop wood, and if they share the expenses and share the various things, they can help one another to stay warm at least in that regard. But isn't it true in verse number 12, if one prevail against him, Two shall withstand him, one by himself, or one who again has no other with him or her, is such that that person can be more readily and easily overcome. I suppose again a married couple is well aware of this, but often the blessed benefit of the perspective that's different between a man and a woman the man can look at a thing and he sees directly. Again, men like to get from A to B in the most direct path. But a woman can see other perspectives, other matters, other intuitive things that are so natural to them. And sometimes those features are very beneficial. On this occasion, a threefold cord is not soon broken. There's strength, you see, in numbers. But in light of all of those things... Solitariness was something that bothered Solomon a bit. Maybe such that we can note one more verse. The teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Quite often we think about the man whose crops, of course, were so bountiful. He had a plan. I'll, build, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And I'll store up those things which I have acquired. And I will say to my soul... Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. For thou hast many goods laid up for many years. Question, was he going to share any of it? There's not the slightest hint of it. I, mine, and me are the key elements in all of it. Well, you'll notice the Lord highlighted, even as God responded in that, tonight thy soul is going to be required of thee. Then whose will these things be? Something to think about in regard to, why am I working so? Well, this person who was in a solitary position, if all they're working for is the accumulation of money, and they have no one to share it with, are they not missing some of the greatest elements of life upon this earth? It is in regard to those things that the chapter closes. 
in verses 13 to 16 with one more thing that Solomon observed. Let's reflect on it as well. I've entitled it Politics. Now that more than likely is not a topic typically reserved for a sermon. But I think it's fair here because we find it in this chapter. What do we mean by it? Let's read verses 13 to 16. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king, who will be no more admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with a second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come shall not, or after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. There, it would seem are a number of principles in that. I'm, I'm going to be a bit brief about some of them, but I've tried to summarize them on this slide. First of all, my, you and I keep in memory that government in its very nature is approved by God. It is His perfect will that individuals enjoy the benefits of civil government. We know that from Romans 13 verses 1 and 2. Now, that's not to say that God's always happy with everything a civil government may choose to enforce or to legislate. But at least their existence, the power that they wield, and the way in which an orderly society can result from their efforts is something that's perfectly consistent with God's will. But it is in that regard we note this. Solomon observed something, or at least he commented about this. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king. Now, a king is one who reigns, one who has authority over perhaps many individuals. And Solomon said, I'm telling you, a poor and wise child is better than an old and foolish king if the following is true, who will be no more admonished. That's a key element in that verse. This person, though a king he is, and maybe he's been reigning a long time, it says he's old, but it goes on to say, he will not be admonished. You can't tell him anything. The evidence means nothing to him. He's set in his ways and he is not going to bend in any way to that which would be the impression of another. I'd submit that's a warning for all of us. We need to be open to instruction. Instruction from the Word of God, instruction from people wiser than we, instruction from those who are seasoned in their experience. It's a dangerous thing if any of us reach the point, nobody can tell me anything, I know it all. If we ever get to that point, we likely have already gotten past a place that's safe and we're treading on ice that's not pleasing to God. Because how often does the Proverbs writer say, Hear instruction. Be open to that advice and counsel from those others. So again, one piece of advice we immediately see. This old and foolish king was foolish because he wouldn't accept the advice or hear the advice of anybody else. At that point, could we not make this observation? In Proverbs 1 verse 7, in Proverbs 8, verse 33, 
there is a tremendous commandment that all of us must consider in that, the openness to instruction. The not only willingness to hear it, but the sensibility to discern its rightness and to perhaps make changes in our life to follow that advice. With that in mind, one more thing. Did you notice what happened in the next verse? I've made mention so far about on the one hand, there's a poor and wise child. On the other hand, is an old and foolish king. But verse 14 says this, Out of prison he cometh to reign. Who's the he? That's the poor and wise child. Now, we don't know why this poor and wise child was in prison. We don't know what had happened that had brought that consideration. It would seem that it was improper. At any rate, we notice he is called wise. But furthermore, it says, he cometh to reign. So the poor and wise child got out of prison and perhaps by wisdom, by effort, by studiousness, he rose to great prominence and he came to be the one that would reign. The old king was not reigning anymore. It was this one who by his wisdom had arrived at that point in life. Isn't that a lesson about the value of wisdom? May all of us strive to be wise. Proverbs 4, 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. But in addition to that, note what happens next. Whereas he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. So, we have a poor wise child who is in prison. He gets out of prison, arrives at a point of reigning, but there's another person who was born in the kingdom. He had all the advantages that the kingdom afforded. But the text says, he became poor. That's a beautiful story. On the one hand, of rags to riches. The one in prison became the one that reigned. But it's also a story of riches to rags. The one who was born in the kingdom, who had all the blessings and benefits, gave them all up because of foolishness. I've often wondered, do you suppose that in his wisdom, Solomon is at least in a way referring to himself here? Now, I realize that can't be all of it. But remember this with me. Solomon was born in the kingdom. His dad was the king, King David. Solomon was reared with all the blessings and privileges. And yet in his own life, he chose to become a fool. Remember, he married all the foreign women and he became idolatrous and turned his life away from God. He acted foolishly. In fact, his son certainly is described that way in 1 Kings 11. May I say, at least it would seem that an element in this came to describe perfectly some of the features of the life of Solomon. Two more things and the lesson will be yours. And you'll see them at the bottom of the slide. You'll notice in verse number 15, I considered all the living which walk under the sun, with a second child that shall stand up in his stead. Now it is true. Something rather remarkable happened. You may even want to note it, highlight it if you wish, there in verse number 16. After this youth rose to prominence and became the king, 
What does verse 16 say about the behavior of the citizens toward him? It says there is no end of all the people. There were lots of people in the kingdom, and at a time they were very supportive of him. It says, even of all that have been before them, they also that come after shall not rejoice in him. The time came, their perspective changed. They didn't support him like they once had done. If that doesn't at least say something about the fickleness of people, I don't know any greater text in Ecclesiastes that would do it. They supported him on one hand, but then the time came that they didn't. You and I live in the midst often of people who behave very fickly. They'll support something, but as soon as they perceive it's not in their benefit anymore, they'll turn against the very same doctrine. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that strange how people can do this? Now, you and I know the Bible always encourages us to stand for the right. Paul, in fact, made note that the Galatians were fickle people. Remember Galatians 3, verses 1 and following? They were fickle, and Paul had to challenge them on that point. I've asked you to consider Acts 28, verses 4 to 6. There's a set of verses where there was a group of people on the island of Malta. They call Paul a barbarian. And two verses later, they called him a god. <laughs> Here was a man, they thought he was a murderer. And two verses later, they said he was a god. Now, isn't that fickle? People whose opinion can be changed so quickly. You and I are admonished of God to be steadfast and anchored better than that. One other passage in Mark 15, verses 11 and following, brings us to the very death of our Savior. Here was the perfect Son of God... Not many hours before, they loved Him. Do you remember? On that Sunday, they walked into Jerusalem laying palm branches before Him. He's the King, the coming King. And five days later, they nailed nails in His hands. How fickle they were. Isn't that remarkable? It's an interesting thing to note we still live amongst fickle times. What once is lifted so highly and encouraged so greatly, seemingly so very quickly, people turn against it. It is with that in mind we close that slide. And notice then that there's a great danger in relying too much on popularity. You know, this king was very popular at one time. He had risen to prominence and in his wisdom he had done this, but the very people over whom he reigned turned against him. He wasn't popular anymore. May you and I never find our strength in popularity. Didn't Jesus say, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, Luke 6, 26. When everybody likes you and me, we've got a problem. For Jesus said, The world has hated me, and it's going to hate you too, John 15, 19. No wonder then you and I understand we are not in the popularity business. And didn't Paul say in Galatians 1.10, If I please men, I am not the servant of Christ. And therefore, you and I simply want to do what's right, pleasing King Jesus, and always striving to learn the valuable lessons of even a chapter like Ecclesiastes chapter 4. As we close this lesson tonight, may I suggest that it will really pave the way for chapter 5 to come, but that will wait for another lesson. 
if there would be anyone in the audience tonight, and maybe all of us have been reminded and challenged on some of these interesting things, but our lesson has involved unfairness. Things that trouble Solomon, like issues in work, oppressions of people, solitariness only for the purpose of riches, and even political choices. You and I would not agree with all the political choices that our political leaders make. But sometimes aren't we thankful for those that are poor and wise, like the young one was at one time, whereas an old and foolish king simply won't hear any instruction. Tonight, as you and I hear the instruction of the Word of God, let us be thankful for it and ever strive to live in accordance to it. Maybe there's someone in the audience who's not a faithful member of the body of Christ. Maybe you've never become a member. There's no greater life to live than the Christian life and no greater destiny to look forward to than heaven. If you haven't begun that walk, let tonight be the night. You do that as you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And upon so doing, you're added to the kingdom. If you have begun that journey, but maybe you have stepped off on a side path, you've made some choices that you're not proud of, and you want God's forgiveness, you know He'll forgive you if you'll repent of them and confess them. We'd be delighted to pray for you tonight. We'd be delighted to do that at once, in fact, while together we stand and while we sing.